Good to praise the Lord together. Seems often on Sunday we receive a new boost of energy and strength and encouragement in the Lord. Uh, today, we need to talk about discouragement. And uh, I hope that uh, the Lord will use it as a means of encouragement to us. But uh, two years ago, we can uh, flip on that first picture. Uh, I uh, boldly went where no uh, Shapiro went before <laughs> and uh, decided to go with some friends uh, climbing out Mount Diablo. And uh, as you can tell, we were struggling a little bit. That's, uh, that's me and uh, Mr. Wong in the back carrying our little ones. I think Ben was about two at the time. You see Joey and Hannah struggling forward. But uh, there was some measure of discouragement during the trip. I think it's maybe a five-mile hike to go up to Mount Diablo from where we were at. And maybe you gain a couple thousand feet in elevation. So for those of you who have done something like Half Dome, you know, this doesn't seem to be quite as much of a challenge. But, you know, you've never heard so much complaining in your life. It was about the kids we were complaining. <laughs> so the Christian life has often been likened to a journey. Probably one of the most uh, popular Christian books in history is Pilgrim's Progress, where the uh, Christian life is, is uh, allegorized as a journey. And often in the Christian life, we come across discouragement, um, such as, as in that in this hike. Uh, the Hebrews were clearly discouraged. It's hard to read the book of Hebrew. Hebrews and not realize that the author is trying to encourage his audience. We don't know exactly why they were discouraged, but uh, we, as we will see in this passage, they went through a period of persecution. And uh, it seems to me that that period of persecution probably extended for several years. And uh, this letter was probably written near the end of that period of persecution. So if you imagine going through persecution and it goes on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it's perhaps not surprising that you become discouraged in your faith in the Lord Jesus after that time. And uh, the same can happen to us. It's not just persecution that discourages us. It could be trials. Uh, in, a, in a financial form, being uh, financially strained for a long period of time. It could be health issues, dealing with health problems for long periods of time. It could be uh, relationship difficulties. If there's someone that you're not getting along with and uh, you know that continues for a long period of time, all these things can discourage us in our faith in the Lord Jesus. And so today we want to look at a number of encouragement the author gives us as to why we shouldn't give up on the Christian life, shouldn't give up on our faith in Jesus in spite of these trials. Now before we read the first portion of the passage, I've been challenging us to memorize Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and I, I like to give opportunities for anyone who took up that challenge to, uh, to stand up and, and recite Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So do we have any takers today? 
All right, Joanna Sanchez. You can say it from right there, nice and loud. Yeah, just nice and loud. Again. There's uh, encouragement all over that verse, right? We see uh, the Lord Jesus lifted as an example for us to run the Christian race. So he's really our ultimate encouragement in, uh, in living the Christian life. Today we will look at a number of other encouragements in addition to the looking at the Lord Jesus. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 and looking at verse 26 as we start. We won't read the whole passage at the same time. We'll break it into section to make it a little bit easier. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Now, when we went up on our trip to Mount Diablo, we had the option of stopping after two or three miles and say, this is too much, and turn back and go home, right? Nothing prevented us from doing it. That's not always the case when you are in a journey. I have a picture as an example. Uh, these are Syrian refugees walking across Europe, and uh, as a family man, I can very much sympathize with parents carrying the small child uh, across long distances, and you can imagine them getting discouraged. And one of them saying to his friend, you know what, this is too much. We've walked for a thousand miles. No one will take us into their home. Let's go back. Let's go back to Syria. And the other would remind him, there is no going back to Syria. Remember, we were going to die if we stayed in our home. We have to keep going. And that is one of the encouragement to persevere in our faith in Christ. There is no going back. There is nothing to return to. It says, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for, for sins. So in this passage where it says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, it means turning your back on Christ. It's not just any sin. It's in particular the sin of apostasy, 
of saying, forget Jesus, this is too difficult. We've been persecuted for several years now. There has to be a better way, an easier path, something else we can do to be right with God. And they perhaps would have thought about the Jewish system of sacrifice. After all, don't we have the temple? Don't we have the sacrifices? Don't we have the Levitical system? Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, up to this point, the author did a very careful job to show that that option was no longer available. The sacrificial system, the Levitical system, was a picture that God set before the Jewish people. It was never sufficient in itself. It was a picture of what Christ was going to do to make us right with God. And now that the reality has come, God was putting the picture away. He wasn't going to accept anybody coming to him on the basis of the Levitical sacrifices. Right? That, that option no longer was there. And he says, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That is, if we don't follow Christ, all we can expect is the judgment of God. And now he proves it in a couple of ways. First, he reminds us of the law of Moses. He says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we have the example of the first covenant, and in the first covenant, God made a way for the people of Israel to come to him. Now, it was a privilege. There was death throughout the world. The scripture reminds us that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Sin did not start with the law. It already existed. People were already dying because of their sins. But now God has made a way for the nation of Israel to approach him. But he made it very clear that this was not an optional way. It's not like they could say, well, we either come to God through the God of Moses or the Hebrews, or if we want to, we can choose to worship some idols or perhaps some other way. He made it very clear this was non-negotiable, non-optional. The only way to God was through Moses and the covenant that Moses has given him. And, uh, and that's why he says, anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. I, I picked an example just to show us the reality of it. In Numbers 15, 32, it says, Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, God just finished giving to them the Ten Commandments, and one of the Ten Commandments was not to do work on the Sabbath. Here a man decided to gather sticks, probably for a fire, or maybe uh, he was going to sell them. I'm not quite sure. Right there, right after God gave the command not to work on the Sabbath. And it says, And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. Wait a second, God just said, we're not supposed to do it. Here's this man doing it. What are we going to do about it? They put him under God because it has not yet been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord, God, said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Right? Rejecting God's law, God's covenant, resulted in death in the Old Testament. Well, now... The author 
translates it to us in verse 29. He says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. There's a few things that annoy me. One of them is, uh, is uh, and you know, I have to be careful. You know, I, I am a sinner myself and I have many, many faults. But uh, one of the faults that sometimes I will notice with my children, uh, children, listen up, is, uh, you know, sometimes there's a book left on the floor in the room, or maybe somewhere else in my house, and they will just walk and walk straight on the book, you know, <laughs> keep on walking. I'm like, wait a second, there was a book there, right? It has some value, you know, pick it up, put it where it belongs, at least don't walk on it, right? Because it just represents you have no value for the thing, right? When you're walking it, right? We'll give it to somebody else if you don't want it, right? All kinds of, you know, thoughts go in my head when I see that happen. Well, here, we have that done with the Lord Jesus, right? It says that someone who is rejecting the Lord Jesus as a way to God, this again in apostasy, somebody saying, well, you know, I'm not going to receive this offer that God has made through his son, I'm going to live it off, and I'm going to do, some, go do something else. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to continue following Jesus. It's, in a sense, as putting no value in him. Here God offers his son for you and for me, and we completely ignore that offer of God. We consider it to be of no value, right? We trample the son of God underfoot, right? So if, if God judged so harshly somebody who rejected the first covenant as the man we just saw, not considering it to be of value to try to follow God, how much more in this case where God is offering his son and we're trampling on him underfoot as having no value, right? Not, not taking up the offer that God has, 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 has reached out for us with his son, rejecting Rejecting the offer. Uh, a couple of other statements here. Counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. So God offered <coughs> the blood of his son, really the life of his son. The blood represents, <coughs> excuse me, the death of Christ here. And here God offers his son as an offering for us. He dies on the cross for our sin. His blood is shed. And it's through that death that God has purchased our redemption. And what it, it, if a person uh, ignores that, turns away from that, he is counting the blood uh, of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, meaning of no value. Right? So to, to the Israelites, they had something that was holy and something that was common. So they're saying the blood of Christ is common. It has no value for me. How offensive would that be to God? And then it says, insulted the spirit of grace. The, the gospel, the offer of Christ is one of grace. I don't deserve it. Right? God would be perfectly justified never having sent a savior for me because I have sinned and I have condemned myself. And yet God from heaven looked down upon me and in his grace he is reaching down to me and offering me 
to me, the life of his son, the sacrifice of his son as a means of redemption, of salvation. And when I say, no, thank you to God, I am rejecting the spirit of grace or insulting the spirit of grace. So how much more if God would judge so harshly those who rejected the first covenant, how much more will he judge those who reject his offer of eternal life through his son? Finally, we have the assurance of judgment in verse 30. <laughs> he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God is pointing out that he is the one with the responsibility of judging. Now, recently, my daughter, Nessia, took up a basketball. Maybe we can get that image. It's uh, hard to find her in the picture. She's all the way in the front. I think she's the one who threw the basketball, but I'm not quite sure. And uh, so, so we see a bunch of players. Who else do we see, Joey, besides for players on the field? Yes. There's a coach. You see the coach? Who else do you see? Yeah, the ref. Very good. So there's somebody who, uh, who has what responsibility to, to judge, right, if one of the players is committing a foul or a, a double, dribble, or a walk with the ball, uh, whose responsibility it is to call? The ref. And only the ref has that responsibility. I can call all day long. That was a foul. That was a double. Nobody would listen to me. Right? They'll keep on playing until the ref makes the call. Now, what if the ref doesn't make a call? Right? It's not going to be a fair game. He is not doing his responsibility. Well, God says vengeance is his. It is God's responsibility to judge people for their sins. Right? And if God doesn't do it, if he doesn't judge us for our sins, he is not fulfilling his responsibility as God, right? which he surely will fulfill. It says here, the Lord will judge his people. Some people might say, well, I accept that God has a general responsibility to judge, but you know what? I am confident that I am okay. Right? I have done some good things, or my, my parents are Christians, or I was raised in a church, and I know that I don't fall under that general umbrella of judgment. It doesn't apply to me. Well, here it specifically says that the Lord will judge his people. And uh, this verse is taken from the Old Testament where we see that example very strong of God judging the nation of Israel. His special people were the first ones that God judged. Right? And so there is no escape by favoritism. If that coach, if that referee had his daughter or daughter playing in that game and he would judge the foul of every other player but not when she did a foul, when she uh, broke the rules of basketball, he would not be a righteous referee. In the same way, if God doesn't judge every person for their sins, he is not a just judge. So God must judge everybody for their sins, and that is why we believe in Jesus, because God has judged Jesus for our sins. His wrath for our sins was, his vengeance was poured upon the Lord Jesus. And there, my brothers and sisters, is the only place of escaping the judgment of God. 
There is no other place than through Christ and Christ's death on the, on the cross. And that's why I said there is no going back from faith in Jesus. Going back from faith in Jesus is going to judgment. Right? There is no alternative to faith in Christ. Now, we don't teach that people can lose their salvation. Uh, there is the word here, if we sin willfully. So this is a hypothetical. True believers will not turn back. Nevertheless, it's a good warning because among true believers, you have some that profess but may not be true believers, and they need to hear this warning. But certainly for us as believers, there is no going back. We keep on going just as the Syrian refugees kept on going. There is no other options than faith in Christ. Let's continue in our reading in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. We made it to through verse 31. Verse 32 says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. One of the things that encourages us sometime when we go on these long hikes is a look back on where we came from. Uh, those are the cables, if I understand correctly, on uh, Half Dome. For those of you who have made that arduous trek to the back, and there you are near the top and struggling, huffing and puffing, and you're thinking, maybe I should just go back. But then you look behind you and you see, I've already come so far. I've already come so far. I'm going to keep on going. And the same thing is true of us in the Christian life. We take a look back and we say, we have come so far. Let us not stop now. That's what the author is doing in the book of, in the uh, passage we look at. He says, recall the former days. He's asking them to cast the look behind them and see how far they have come. And he's recounted some of the things that they have already done in their Christian life after they were illuminated. That's when God opened their eyes to understand the gospel. It says, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. They were persecuted for their faith, as we have mentioned before. It says, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. I don't know exactly the form of persecution they had, but it appears to have been of a public nature. Perhaps they were put up in front of the crowd and abused verbally, and maybe also abused physically. And, and yet, they held on to their faith in spite of it. They, their profession in Christ was not broken. They endured those persecutions. And uh, we, too, uh, experience opposition to our testimony. Now, we don't typically experience that level of persecution in this country. In some countries, you can still experience those levels of persecution. Uh, in this country, it tends to be a much more mild form. Uh, for example, my wife recently offered to volunteer in, uh, in my children's school to help teach uh, a, uh, <coughs> a Hebrew dance, uh, 
And uh, another parent volunteered to teach a, um, a very modern dance with very modern words, which are not consistent with the gospel of Christ. And uh, my wife had to take a step back and say, you know, if, uh, if you want to teach this song and dance, that's fine. I won't be able to participate in that because I don't feel that the words in this song are right. Now, that's not a popular move, right? The other, the other parents may feel, hey, she's not pulling the weight, her weight. You know, what is it she finds so objectionable with the words? There is no crime committed. It doesn't talk about breaking the law, which lots of lyrics today do. They might think that the song is fine, and yet we stand up for our convictions in Christ, will bring us into opposition with the world, right? It says, uh, Jesus assures us of, of uh, a persecution in this world, and after that he says, therefore whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. As we look back, at times in our lives where we faced opposition to our faith, and yet we, we stuck with it. We testified of, of Christ. We stood by his word. That, that, those were accomplishments God wants us to remember, and he will reward us for standing with him. Jesus says that he will confess. Whoever confesses him before men, he will also confess before his Father. He chooses to reward us for whenever we will stand for him in this world. And we can look back at our life and see those occasions where we stood for him, and that is an encourage, encouragement for us. We have come so far, let us not turn back now. Then he mentions the fact that when he was in prison, so here it says that the author was in prison, for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Let me just stop there. For you have had compassion on me in my chain. So the author of the book of Hebrews apparently was taken to jail, and it says that the believers that he's writing to had compassion upon him. Now, I don't know what kind of meals they feed you in jail, Tom, today, but I imagine nobody has to go hungry, right? You're, you're providing sufficient food for the, the inmates. It wasn't so in the days this letter was written. You were put in jail because you have done something wrong, if you want to eat, your friends and family better come and feed you, right? Or you will go hungry. And the believers went out of their way, and with their, uh, what provisions they had, they supported the author of this epistle, and they provided for him in prison, thereby probably risking themselves, because I imagine the jailer was taking notes. Oh, let's see who's coming and feeding this guy who was put here for jail, in jail for being a Christian, right? So they showed love for, for, the, for the believers. Jesus said, the new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So whenever we show love to another believer, we're, we're following Christ. We are displaying faith in Christ. Uh, me and my wife were often the recipients of the love of the saints here at Calvary. Uh, the most recent ones, uh, six months ago, my son Joey decided to do acrobatics on the pavement, always a bad idea, and ended up fracturing his skull. 
and uh, we were in the hospital with him for a couple of days. And, you know, the offers of the saints came pouring in. One of the saints watched uh, our children. One of the saints, uh, you know, offered to come visit us at the hospital or provide food for us, right? So as you look at those, ask, uh, at those times in your life where you stepped out and offered to help, offered love, offered encouragement, to the saints. God looks at those things too. He wants you to look back at them and say, we have come so far. Let us not turn back now. And then he said, uh, you, uh, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. It appears that the believers to whom this letter was written had the property confiscated as a result of being Christian. The government just came in and took their possessions away from them. And you know what? It says that they accepted it. It even says they accepted it joyfully, which is quite a testimony. I've never had to experience that. But uh, we do experience, we have a choice in this life. Do we want what this world has or do we want what Christ has for us in heaven? As he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And later he mentions, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. When I finished college and I got my degree, I had a choice to make. What job did I want to apply for? And uh, I could have applied for jobs around the country, maybe even around the world, and taken the highest bidder. But I was planted in a local assembly and I was thinking, well, I think God wants me to serve him there. So I will look for a job that is within reasonable commute distance to that assembly or to a house that would be near that assembly so that I can serve. And the result was I probably didn't get the highest job, highest paying job that I could have gotten because I put the work of the Lord first. I was willing to lose, if you will, material possessions, material wealth, for the sake of gaining treasures in heaven, right? And as we look back at our lives and we see those times where we chose to further the kingdom of God rather than our material possessions, we see uh, evidence, the distance that we have covered in our choice to follow Jesus. We have come so far, let us not turn back now. Continuing later in the book, in the passage, in verse 35, he now tells the believers, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. My children are familiar with our long drive to visit their grandparents in, in Los Angeles. How long does it take us, Eliana? About seven hours in the car. Sometime we will run into traffic and it'll take us more than seven hours. And uh, 
What do we do, Joey, when we run into traffic? Do we say, maybe we should turn back and, and go back home to Fremont? No, why not? Why do you want to keep going? Yeah, we like going to our Saba and Grandma's house, right? He likes what this picture shows. He loves my grandparents. I mean, my parents, his grandparents. <laughs> right? He enjoys being with them, and so he doesn't want to turn back. As he sits in the car for seven hours or longer, he thinks of, of what's waiting for him at the other end, and that keeps him going. Let us not turn back, Daddy. We have Saba and Grandma waiting for us. And so it is for us. We have a reward waiting for us in heaven. We have an expectation. It's described for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. We have an expectation in heaven, and that drives us there. In spite of the difficulties, we come across We've had that uh, effort of describing our expectation in heaven several times already this weekend. I'll just uh, add one of mine to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. In heaven is reserved for me a place as a son of God. I have a privilege in heaven that angels do not have. And that is one of the treasures waiting for us there and of course seeing our Lord, whom having not seen, we love, right? We love the Lord Jesus, and we love him more. The more we know him, the more we understand him and what it is he did for us. We look forward to seeing him. Let us not turn back. I liked what was written at the bottom of Marie's memorial uh, brochure yesterday. It said, but just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. A week ago, the, the Silvas and we uh, decided to brave the elements and uh, head up to the mountains to uh, enjoy a weekend in the snow. And uh, we want to be prepared for a trip. And so our car is well packed. Our gas tank is full. 
the GPS has the map loaded in it to make sure that we have everything we need to go on the trip. And if I didn't, wasn't fully prepared, I would probably be a little bit more nervous and reconsider whether I want to go. But knowing that I have everything that I need for the journey encourages me to pursue it to the end. And so we have for us here the statement, they just shall live by faith. What is it that we need to make it to heaven? Only one thing, and that is faith. God just wants us to trust him. He will take us there. He just wants us to trust him, to believe, and let him lead the way. Then, in closing, there is a statement of confidence. He says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Sometimes it seems like the author to the Hebrews is doubtful as to the eternal state of his audience, but often he'll come with very bold statements showing that he believes that he is speaking to true believers, and as a result, he can have confidence that they will make it to heaven. And what is that confidence based? <clears throat> I have a picture of a swimming, swimmer up there. The name of the swimmer is Diana Niad. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. I don't know how many of you heard her. But in 2013, she performed a feat that had not yet been performed. She swam from Cuba to Florida Keys over a period of, I think, something like 60 hours. This is continuously. Uh, and uh, it's a distance of about 110 miles. And what's notable about her crossing it what, what really is the first, apparently she's not the first one to have swum it, but she is the first one to have swum it not in a shark cage. So these are shark infested waters. And so perhaps in the past, I, I don't have a picture of that, people swam, but there was a cage around them to protect them from the sharks, which I fully understand. And you say, wow, this woman did that. Let me show you another picture. This woman was not alone. Throughout her 110-mile journey for over three days, there was a boat right next to her and probably a few other ones that are not shown in the picture. She was not alone. And I imagine that gave her a lot of confidence, right? It's one thing to jump into the water off the coast of, of Cuba and to start on all alone to Florida Keys. Your chances of survival are not very high. But if you have a boat next to you <laughs> that's constantly monitoring you and probably people ready to jump into the water, the first sign either of danger or perhaps that you've lost consciousness or have reached the end of your strength, it would give me a lot more confidence right, to attempt something like that. Now, I'm not going to attempt that anyway. Right? I wouldn't last a quarter of a mile, let alone 110 miles. But still, in the Christian race, the thing to remember is you are not alone. 
It says this in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So during your Christian life, you are not alone. You have God around you, God protecting you more effectively than a boat and uh, other equipment can provide for you crossing the ocean. So let me just wrap up. I noticed as I was uh, doing some searches online, often uh, when I prepare to speak, I will do some searches for appropriate images. As you can tell, I like using pictures as illustrations in my sermon. So one of the things I typed in is not giving up or do not give up. And there is a lot, <coughs> there is a lot of presentations out there encouraging people to not give up, to continue. It's something that uh, companies will probably pay a lot of money to someone to come and visit their employees and encourage them. Don't give up. Keep on going, right? Because these companies want you to not give up and continue to make money for them, right? And <clears throat> but those presentations are generally empty and without content, right? They try to encourage you, but there's no good basis to continuing to go as we have in the Christian faith. What is it that we have that the world cannot offer that compels us to continue on in the Christian race? First of all, <clears throat> there is no alternative to the Christian race. The alternative is eternal judgment, and that keeps us going. Uh, second, we have come so far. We can look back in our lives and see all the things that we have already accomplished in our Christian life that God took note of and will reward us for. Let us not give up. Third, we have a wonderful reward at the end. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise awaiting us in heaven. We have a place with God as sons of God. Let us not give up. Fourth, we have all it takes to make it to the end, our faith. You don't need any more than your faith and trust in God to continue. And finally, we have God himself to help us every step of the way. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the passage you have provided for us in the book of Hebrews, encouraging us to go on in our faith for you. We recognize trials do come, Lord, and they do discourage us, and often we don't, do not know what to do. We ask, Lord, for your special strength for all among us going through trials to encourage us and to help us continue on till we reach and claim that uh, prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We pray for anyone here who does not know you personally, hasn't yet put their faith in you for salvation, Lord, that you will convict them of the judgment that is to come and show them that the only safety lies in what your son has done for them on the cross. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.